Hi, this is David Anthony Durham, author of The Risen and the Acacia Trilogy, and you're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. Today's guest is the author of The Pride of Carthage, the Acacia Trilogy, and other works of historical and fantasy fiction, including short stories set in George R.R. Martin's Wild Card series, as well as appearing in both the Unfettered and Unbound anthologies from Grim Oak Press. His novels have been New York Times Notable Books, won two awards from the American Library Association, and been translated into eight languages. Accolades also include winner of the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer of Science Fiction and Fantasy. His latest book, The a historical novel about the Spartacus-led rebellion against the Roman Republic dropped May 3rd from Doubleday Books. George R.R. R. Martin himself says our guest has serious chops, and we happen to think so as well. Skyping in today from Edinburgh, Scotland, the Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes David Anthony Durham to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Rob, uh, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And man, you've got the latest book, The Risen. It's got the big fat blurb right on front. David Anthony Durham has serious chops. I can't wait to read whatever he writes next. Quote, unquote, Papa George, George R. R. Martin, says that David Anthony Durham knows how to drop science. So very cool. Thanks for joining us today. We're here to talk about your latest book, amongst other things. Uh, the Risen is the novel, and it's a novel of Spartacus, and you're actually the first author that we've had on the show who writes, I think, historical fiction specifically. Maybe tell us a little bit about The Risen and what inspired you to write from this specific time period. Right. Well, I... I've always been fascinated by the enemies of Rome. Uh, that was very much what Pride of Carthage was, um, dealing with the war between Hannibal and Rome. And in that case, I remember it was a very simple, sim- similar inspiration. Uh, I was in a, uh, a Roman world class in college. I remember being in the auditorium and the professor came in to talk that day about Hannibal. And I was purely fascinated by the story uh, he gave there. And when he did the same with Spartacus, it just seemed like uh, they were epic uh, stories and amazing characters and twists and turns of fate that at that point, I, I was writing fiction and I just said, I, you know, I hope I can write a novel about that someday, or, or if not, I want to read a novel about that someday. Uh, that was the case with, with, uh, with Hannibal, and it was also there with Spartacus. And in particular with Spartacus... But one thing that, that was different about them was that after writing the Acacia Trilogy, my publisher wanted me to head back toward historical fiction, and I was ready to do that. And I just assumed that writing Spartacus would be just like writing Pride of Carthage. Uh, and in fact, it was totally different. It took me a lot longer to find my vision of the story I wanted to tell, and it went through a lot of different per- permutations. I end up loving how it, how it, how it ended up. Uh, it's a story with lots of point-of-view characters, uh, there are 10 major points of view, and they are all sorts of people. Uh, yeah, definitely gladiators, of course, um, and Roman soldiers, but there are also uh, several w- women characters and non-combatants. It's just a big, uh, not so much just a story of Spartacus, but a story of the rebellion that tries to give voice to lots of characters who you wouldn't otherwise uh, hear about, but who were there and who were involved in this this whole thing. And... I also found Spartacus, the more I looked into him, uh, to be a fascinating character in terms of uh, what I came to believe he was trying to do. Uh, there's lots of conflicting notions as to whether he just wanted to 
to get out of, of Italy and go home or uh, had more ambitious motivations. And I say he had some more ambitious motivations, and that's what the novel is it's about exploring. So you went with more of a historical approach than the kind of Hollywood or uh, glitzy glamour kind of approach that uh, maybe the uh, Spartacus TV show was very uh, <laughs> a kind of <laughs> is great. Like the first season, I really enjoyed. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, definitely had a whole lot more blood splatter and sex and all that kind of stuff in it. Um, is is that the line you kind of went with with? your current novel or you, you went more straight and narrow down the historical hmm. path? Uh, somewhere in between. I mean, I, I enjoyed the, the Spartacus series as well. Uh, like you, especially uh, toward the beginning of it. Uh, I didn't think I was going to be doing a similar version of that. Really. Um, I certainly have, it's this novel has its share of blood and gore um, and, a, and a bit of sex as well. <laughs> but uh, I do think of it as, as more of a straight historical novel but also a historical novel that has some fantastical elements uh, insofar as the people I'm writing about very much believed in their gods and their multiple gods and the power of um, divine forces in their lives. So a lot of what they do, decisions they make, um, are often, to their mind, influenced and sanctioned, approved of or not approved of by the gods. So there's a lot of mystical aspects uh, to it as well. Would you say that this is like a sequel to The Pride of Carthage, or how is it directly related to that title? Mm, sure. Well, it's, it's related in part because it's, it's on the, the Enemies of Rome theme. Uh, unfortunately, the Enemies of Rome, they never quite managed to pull it off. Um, but <laughs> they had some, some spectacular things in the process. So it is a return to that sort of uh, historical novel with a large cast of characters, and one that is obviously I'm fictionalizing things, but I'm also trying to get at the core of what what happened to to make sense of it, uh, and also to bring it to life with individual characters. So they're very related in that regard, but I think I found Pride of Carthage easier to just begin writing and to to move forward with it. Uh, And something happened in there, and I don't doubt that it's in relation to the Acacia Trilogy and being uh, three big books in a fantasy world, and a fantasy world that gets more fantastic as the books progress. There's a lot more magic by the end of the third book than there was at the beginning of the first. And in part, that's because I was growing as a fantasy writer and becoming more comfortable with those elements. And then when I tried to go straight back to historical, I kept having some impulses that uh, maybe I wasn't supposed to be having, according to my publisher, because they said, okay, this next novel, it'll be a historical novel. uh, And the contract very specifically said that. And I said, great. But then I started to try to write it. And for a long time, I couldn't really find my vision of it. And then I found one thing that seemed to get me pretty excited. And that was to tell the whole thing with a werewolf and vampire element to it. Hmm. Yeah, I know. Slight a twist. Slight twist. Yes. <laughs> Suddenly, if I made the Thracians into werewolves and the Roman um, elites into a type of vampire, my own, my own spin on it, everything made sense, and it got exciting and sexually sexy and uh, and really violent, and gory. I ran that idea past my editor, and he was very dubious. 
He said, go ahead, go ahead and try it, you know, get some pages down and I'll take a look. So I did. I, I dove in and was pretty enthusiastic about uh, how, that, how that progressed. I gave him 150 or so bloody vampire full-on were- <laughs> werewolf pages. And he came back saying, hmm, this is maybe really good. And maybe really bad. <laughs> and I can't tell the difference. At least that's what I remember him saying, something like that. And because he couldn't be sure, he said, no, David, can you, can you go back to the, the straight historical? You can let some of this material inform it. And it does, actually. But we want that historical novel again. And I had to do that. At the time, it was definitely pulling back from a direction I'd gone in that felt, felt good to me. But he also mentioned another, a book I hadn't read about Spartacus, uh, a nonfiction book. And when I read that, it was perfect timing because that person speculated on Spartacus' motivations, is Aldous Gibbon, in a way that really made sense to me. Made more sense than other treatments uh, of, of his actions that, I, that I'd read before. And that was a big turning point with me reconnecting with, okay, I'm going to take this, this spin on it and stay historical, and yet keep some mystical elements in the book. And also, there are scenes that the current scene in in the published book was definitely influenced by having written some of this material in a werewolf version first. Uh, There is, like, for example, there's a scene early in the book when Astira, uh, a woman, a priestess, is going to kill uh, a Roman and when I first wrote that scene, she's a werewolf. And she climbs up onto the bed where he's sleeping. And I'm, you know, picturing a big hulking werewolf looking down on him. And, you know, the bed creaks because of, of, of her weight as she, um, she climbs over him. And she does him in um, kind of spectacularly in that werewolf version. And I rewrote the scene in a human version. But a lot of the imagery stayed there. A lot of the menace of it. And I love that because it ends up feeling like that fantastical version that I went with for a little while, even though I had to pull back from it, still became a foundation for my getting to know the characters and their strengths and uh, desires. So uh, I, it's a long process, but I'm actually really happy with the way things turned out. And I'm not done thinking that maybe one day I, I will write, write my werewolf vampire version of something ancient Roman. I think you came up with a new process of writing called the uh, werewolf process where you can basically write a novel and just put werewolves in it. And and then you can go back and find, find and uh, replace and you can still have, you can have your werewolf cake and eat it too. There, there is something to that. I I think there probably was something about uh, making the emotions and the anger and everything so raw on both sides for a little while there that allowed me to to get grounded in in some of the drama that I wanted to to portray. So yeah, maybe. Yeah, and you can also, um, like you said, you're doing Enemies of Rome, so you've done uh, Hannibal and Spartacus, so the next one could be Werewolves. Just just, just go full on with it. I've got some ideas. (laughs) 
And being is that you're the kind of the first author that we've had on board uh, on the show who's specifically written historical fiction as well. We just wanted to pick your brain for a moment just to find out what what sort of compels you to write historical fiction. I know you you had a degree in in history from school as well, but what is it about history that appeals to you that makes you want to write uh, fiction based in in the past? The way I answered that question for a while was that when I looked at history, I always found such amazing stories stories that just seemed to offer a wealth of, of ideas and things I wanted to explore. And also, to some degree, some of my fiction is historical, but it's completely fictional characters in Gabriel's story and Walk the Darkness. Um, those are just um, novels set in historical settings. But then with something like Pride of Carthage or The Risen, I loved the vivid template that the historical record provided. That was clearest in Pride of Carthage, actually. Because uh, it was quite quite a well documented conflict. So in that one, I had a skeleton of the whole conflict and of some major plot points that needed to be hit and certain outcomes that I knew I needed to cover. And it was wonderful stuff. It was epic, tragic, crazy twists and turns of fate. But then that's just the material. It's bringing it to life in fiction that I really found exciting. It's a bit of a puzzle, really. You know, yes, these things happened, but when you put characters on the ground and are seeing through their eyes as they live through these things, it all just takes on a lot more richness and and life. And I think I end up with my version of understanding these big conflicts in a way that is quite a bit more um, nuanced, I think, than when it's just reading the historical material. Um, so there's that. There's also, though, that in a lot of ways, when I'm writing something that is far enough away from present day, it's a lot like fantasy, really. You know, it's, it's a world that does not exist anymore with belief systems that are very far removed from ours and a whole different con- conception of, of the world and the forces that are at work in it. So it didn't feel like that big a shift um, to begin and begin in historical fiction, move into fantasy, and then feel like I could move back into historical fiction. In either case, you're building a world that doesn't exist. Um, and I find that exciting, too. Do you have plans to, to go back to fantasy uh, after this? I'm all over the place at, at the moment. Uh, one of the things I am working on is, is again, straight historical fiction, an epic set in ancient Rome. I don't know if that's going to fly or not. Um, I just sent some pages to my uh, agent, so I'll get his opinion on it. That's one way I'm going right now. But definitely, fantasy, I'm not done with it. Uh, absolutely not. I am still writing um, science fiction fantasy, in part for, for George R. R. Martin and Wild Cards. And I have my lingering fascination with werewolves in particular. <laughs> I might re- revisit it someday. And also, just there are some other fantasy, epic fantasy ideas that are not quite, I'm not taken off with them yet, but, you know, I'm, I'm living with them for a while. I absolutely think that fantasy and science fiction are going to continue to be part of my life, maybe with some horror in there as well. Actually, the last contribution I did for Wild Cards, it's for the forthcoming book called High Stakes, that was largely a big Lovecraftian horror fest. And that was a lot of fun to write, but pretty brutal for a while in a horror type vein. So you're actually the second Wild Cards uh, contributor we've had on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Victor Milan uh, was right. on the show. Right. And uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with Wild Cards in name. Maybe people who haven't read it, could you kind of describe what it is? I could try. <laughs> it's, it, it's, you know, a number of 
strange, kind of unusual elements. It, let me see, how, does, how do I start with this? In terms of the concept of the world, it's an alternative version of, of our world, wherein in the 1940s, there was a, an alien, as in space alien, virus released on Earth, and it pretty much changed everything. Killed a lot of people outright, and made other people into kind of deformed uh, and potentially hideous creatures, and also made a few, uh, a smaller percentage into something like superheroes. And then in each novel, there are, there's been 20-something of them so far. So in a way, it's, it's superhero, mutant, the stuff of comic books to some degree, but it's in, it's in prose form. So that's part of it. But then it gets more complicated because George doesn't write them all himself. It's all about a collective uh, experience. So each, each novel is likely to be written by six or seven people. And normally there is one person who has kind of the main story. He might recur through the whole book. And other people have stories that interweave with that. So there's a lot of give and take, a good bit of collaboration, a good bit of writing the best you can and hoping that it's going to actually make sense with what someone else is writing. It's a pretty strange process. I and mean, part of how it works, though, is when George is ready to have a new book to get writers signed on to it, he goes out to us. We're all part of his handpicked consortium. And once you're in, you're in, which is a nice thing. And he offers, he offers an idea, which is you know, the, the basic sort of idea pitch for uh, what the book is going to be, be about. But then it's up to us to take that concept and figure out ways that we want to work with it. So it's highly collaborative. And even though there's some framework, the book that is produced is very much uh, a product of all these different writers bringing their own things to it and their own characters. That's another thing that we have we come to it with our own characters and we create new ones with each book we sometimes write other people's characters in our stories and actually the character creation thing was the first hurdle i had to to overcome to uh, get get involved with this so i met george a number of times some years back at conferences and um, he read some of my work. I think he read Pride of Carthage first, actually. And so we got along well. And at some point, I got an email from him saying, hey, are you interested in, in this wild cards thing? And of course, I was, absolutely. <laughs> and the next thing is like, okay, well, the kind of the thing that has to happen as you enter in, if it's going to work, you have to produce a, a signature character, your first character. It has to be someone who we haven't seen in 20-some books it has to be interesting and fresh and uh, etc. And that proved to actually be pretty tough, especially the first time out. I'd read some, some wild cards, absolutely, um, and definitely wanted to be in, but it was pretty hard to get a character to George that hadn't already been done or been done several times, or for him just to, to shoot it down as, you know, that's a pretty crap idea. Um, <laughs> uh, or, you know, kind of lose the frog legs um that's that's that doesn't doesn't work at all um and that happened for a number of times and i was i was starting to worry and then i <laughs> kind of looked looked over and saw the thing that was so obvious a resource that i was not calling on and that was my son he must have been about seven at the time and you know it's as if he's like sitting next to me like saying can you like pay attention um and he, <laughs> with with a folder in his lap that is his superhero and mutant um, character book, you know, literally. literally. Uh, so I said, Sage, let, let's, let's take a look at that together. And 
really, one of his characters, the original name was um, Black Tongue, uh, was a very rough character idea. I mean, I think the main, the main thing is that Sage said he had a tongue that he could kind of like spit out of his mouth, so it, like it, as if it was punching, and it could, it could stretch all the way around the world and touch him in the back of the head. That's, and like, why? That's awesome. Why, yeah, well, but why this guy would want to do that, you know, he couldn't explain. But there was something about uh, the concussive tongue that I ran with, and I combined some other uh, other traits of his characters, and we just bounced ideas off each other, and then bounced them off George as well, and we ended up with my main character, who ends up being called the infamous Black Tongue. The tongue is a part of it. It's also significant that his whole lower body is an enormous snake body, and he's kind of a, a, a joker vigilante fighting for the rights and protections of the mutants in this world. And it worked. George, George was into that. That character was in uh, Fort Freak, my first book to contribute to, and then in Lowball. And in Lowball, he actually got the cover. So there's an awesome, awesome uh, illustration of my guy, like, you know, plummeting through the air on a, on a city street and with his tail stretching out be behind him. And it's pretty amazing to me to look back to where that character came from and to know how much of that is a product of a collaboration between me and my son. And that collaboration has continued. You know, he's definitely a go-to person for character ideas, uh, plot point ideas. He's really quick that way. And yeah, he takes some pride, some pride in it as well. Maybe following in, in dad's footsteps someday. But he certainly could. I mean, he has, I sometimes think of him as really enjoying the collaboration, maybe almost more, more than I do, or, or being more naturally collaborative. He wants to be a director, and I'd, I'd love to see that happen, actually. He'd be a really good one. <laughs> and we can say, speaking of director, you have your Acacia series. Uh, I know it's been optioned for filming, in addition to uh, at least one of your other novels as well. Um, any traction at all in uh, Acacia moving forward with the filming process, or any other traction on your other books? Well, that's, okay, it's a long story there. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, Acacia is, was optioned. It no longer is. Okay. There was a screenplay oh. written on all that stuff, okay. so that's come and gone. But I guess, let me talk about all of them, because, you know, it, it's a thing that you just dream about, and, and wait, and hope, and go, yikes, you know. Things would be so different if they just said yes to this movie. Uh, the first thing of mine there to get optioned was my first novel, Gabriel's Story. And in that case, it was an Italian producer, Uberto Pasolini, who lives in, in London. And he's an independent producer. Doesn't make a lot of movies, but I guess really gets behind the ones that he does make. His biggest success was The Full Monty back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, he fell in love with Gabriel's story. It's a, it's a novel about uh, black homesteaders in the 1870s and the son in the family who runs away and gets into a lot of trouble with some, some bad guys. And he was interested in that. And we're talking probably 13 years ago or so. And he said right from the start, you know, it's not going to be easy to get this made. We're going to have to have a really good screenplay and, and take our time with it. Uh, but he wants to make it happen. And he optioned it. And that was 13 years ago. I think we're on the 13th renewal of the, of the option, because it's once every year. Um, he reboots and says, okay, didn't happen last year, but I think we're going we're gonna to make it happen this year. This is the year. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> there is a screenplay uh, written by director Alan Taylor, and he has just done some pretty big things. Uh, he did 
the I think the second Thor movie and mm. the most recent Terminator. Before that, he has also does uh, a number of independent films and a lot of uh, HBO sort of dramas. He was you know a Game of Thrones go to director and Sopranos mm. and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. all all the good stuff. He has a hand in a lot of that and he wrote the screenplay which I read and really liked. He has more humor than I do. And he infused that into the story a bit. I remember really liking that. Uh, so there, that is out there. And my fingers, sort of metaphorical fingers, remain crossed on that. But then there's, there's, there's a mixed bag, really. So the second thing to get optioned was my second novel, Walk Through Darkness. And that was a very modest option by a young producer. And, you know, I don't think he placed it anywhere. And that option, you know, fades after about a year. So it goes. And then the next one, it was actually, I think we skipped over Pride of Carthage initially, and then it was Acacia. And that was uh, a, you know, a significant option and definitely felt the Hollywood vibe for a while. Went down there to, um, to Comic-Con in San Diego and with the, the producers and definitely had a Hollywood experience. Just silly stuff like going to all these parties and getting to skip the queue, the the line, um, yeah, just ah. stuff like that. I mean, it was it was it was really it was interesting and it was fun, <laughs> but uh, nothing came of that one, and that option uh, eventually expired. Uh, but then it was Pride of Carthage that that picked up. Uh, initially, it was with uh, Will Smith and and Overbrook, and this was at the time this was super hush hush. Like I couldn't really talk about it. I guess I can now because. Nothing happened with it, and it's just kind of history. Mm. Uh, so that the notion of that would have been for a miniseries, which I would love because I I think the story is best told over time uh, instead of kind of trying to cram it all into a, a short time frame. But that option went away, and I'm pleased to say that someone else picked it up, and it's currently optioned again by Sonar Entertainment, again with the notion of developing it for. Uh, TV miniseries. There's a screenwriter attached, and I believe a screenplay has been written. I have no idea if it's gonna if it's gonna fly. I guess you can't really know. Definitely, so many more things get optioned than ever get made. But it's nice that people keep trying, and it's great to have two active options out there now. It does mean that I live in constant anticipation. You know, any, anytime I check my email, anytime the phone rings, it's always possible it could be a life-changing um, bit of information. Uh, hasn't happened yet, but, you know, the, the dream lives on. Have there been many uh, adaptations of Hannibal's story? Uh, wasn't there... Uh, I'm trying to think of any. I, I, I haven't seen any. I am aware of one. It's from a few years back, but I didn't see it. So I can't really comment on that. And no, you would think, not, you would think there would be one. Yeah. <laughs> so you, yours, you yours is the, yours is the one to go to, I think at this point. I, that would be, um, my, my um, opinion as well. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Certainly there's nothing like the Spartacus movie from the sixties. Although that is long, long enough ago that I think that could use a, a big screen reboot as well. And I guess I have a novel that I think would be good source material <laughs> for that one too. If you had to pick which one property you wanted to see get put to film first, do you have a, a baby or a favorite that you'd like to see roll out? <laughs> Ooh, now to answer that question, honestly requires that I admit, you know, mercenary, you know, aspects. If I was to say, you know, in, in my heart, like just the movie that might be the, the, the most special for me to watch, it's probably going to be Gabriel's story. 
because uh, mm-hmm. that was, you know, it was my third novel. I wrote two before that, but it was the first one that actually clicked and got me published and and took off from there. And I'm really kind of quite attached to it for that and would, would love to see that uh, on film. And also, having read the screenplay, I know it's, it would be a good film uh, by, by a good director and a terrific writer. Uh, so there's that, but that would inherently be a smaller film than one of these big epics. Mm-hmm. And the big epics are going to pay a bit more, just to be <laughs> honest. So uh, it's a toss-up. I, hey, I would be happy to see any of them because, you know, it's like picking between your, you know, your children or something. They are all uh, my creations. And I would, you know, love to see that crazy collaboration that puts something into film. Uh, I would hope that they would be um, a good one. Do you have a particular favorite property right now that that started out as a fantasy series that's that's now become a TV series? <laughs> um, other than the, the obvious elef- elephant and uh, <laughs> I mean Game of Thrones, I, I kind of watched that happen really because in the, the early days mm-hmm. when I was kind of just getting to know George and just on the the scene myself, and and when there was talk about Acacia maybe being made into something, uh, that's when George was going through the process of putting things together with HBO, there was a time when there wasn't a deal and there wasn't that vision. Um, there wasn't that awesome opening sequence um, and that theme music. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of amazing um, to think all that exists and all that is, is is just so around the world. I don't know that any other science fiction uh, project or um, fantasy project out there is going to have the same level of worldwide domination anytime soon but that's okay george deserves it well i think people like to speculate on you know once the game of thrones mm. tv show wraps what's going to be what's, yeah, what's going to be the next big because you know people are going to be clamoring for the next big epic fantasy series so uh yeah. all, all you f- epic fantasy writers out there keep <laughs> keep them coming <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, you know, I don't, that, that magic seems hard to, re, to reproduce, but I'm all for people trying. As far as uh, Acacia, you finished the series, you did an interview with OF Blog mm, okay, yeah. a while back, and you said you always want to know the end of your novels and the end of your series before you actually start writing. And uh, Raymond E. Feist, we just interviewed him, and he said the same thing. Like, mm. that's that's why people flail around with ideas sometimes is because they don't know the ending. As far as writing epic fantasy, did you always know the end? I mean, with with historical fiction, you you know the end <laughs> because <laughs> you, you kind of know the end. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. So that that's funny, and that's um, it's very true that I think if you, if you don't know where you're where you're heading. It can cause you a lot of trouble, and I'm a case in point on that with the the risen. But I'll start with the with knowing the ending. It's not that I do, I know the ending before I begin to write. It's just early in the process. You know, I have the concept for for the book and some of the main characters, and I start to try to get to know the world by writing my way into it uh, from the beginning. But then, usually, pretty early on, something occurs to me where I go, oh. That's going to be how it ends. That's where it ends. That's the moment um, that will be, you know, the last note of this book. And I go and I write that. And once it's in place, I go, fine, okay. Now the journey of the novel for the reader, but also before that for me, is finding how my characters get between where they are at the beginning 
and where things end up at the end. And generally speaking, that ending stays true. There may be lots of twists and turns and so much stuff to figure out in the process, but it can be a nice anchor point when it feels right and when it somehow kind of hit on the themes and the resonance that I want the novel to have. So that's something that happens naturally. It's not as if I, I you know, thought that up ahead of time. It's just, um, generally speaking, been the process I go through. The only time it's been different was actually with the Spartacus book. Mm-hmm. In that case, I, I mean, yes, you could say historically, you know how it ends. It didn't end well for the gladiators. No. <laughs> but there's still how, it, how I deal with the, the final moment and the final mm-hmm. you know, scenes of the book don't necessarily have that much to do specifically with the historical record. It has to do with how the characters and which character is going to be the one who closes out the book and what is his or her life like at that point and how is it going to, what's going to resonate um, at the conclusion. And that scene I did not have, which is part of why the process of writing the book was a lot more challenging, I think. It was really one chapter at a time in a way that I hadn't, I've never really done before. Often with with the other books, I guess I'm writing forward from the start, but there can be plenty of times I'll just jump forward because I'll, I'll think of something and go, okay, this is going to happen probably around page 400, whatever. I go and write that scene, and then I go back to where I left off on page 120 and try to keep move forward again until something else occurs to me, and I would jump forward and write that. With this book, I stayed pretty anchored to... Um, Chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. It just built kind of brick by brick that way. And I did not know how it was going to end until I got there. And I couldn't have. I, it's, I come to think with that book, there was so much about, for me, about the kind of the resonance of the ending moments and some of the symbolism there that really worked for me. But all that stuff, my understanding of those, of those ingredients only came through working my way slowly through the material and getting to know these characters and their gods and the things they believed. And that has a lot of influence on where the book ended. So I don't know for sure if I could have said with that one that mm-hmm. I, I could have approached it differently and, and found the ending more quickly. It was just a different process. And there you go. Like There are no guarantees in this creative stuff. You know, I can say that there are patterns of things that have happened or ways I've worked through novels before, but each one is a, is a new challenge. And I'm fully aware that embarking on a new novel, the things that worked in the past might not work for this one. Kind of like cooking or something, you know, you can't cook uh, a hamburger the same way you can cook apple pie. You kind of <laughs> have to, you have a really shitty hamburger or really shitty apple pie. <laughs> uh, you got to do it a different way sometimes, even if your gut says, ah, oh, I should do it this way. Uh, sometimes you need to to do something different. I, yeah, agreed. Absolutely. And I think with each novel, you're spending enough time with them and investing a lot in it and taking risks because you never know if if you're going to write this thing well, if people are going to like it, if they're going to buy it. There's a lot of pressure there in some ways, but also feels to me like I I can only really, really get invested in something when I find a vision for the novel that feels like, you know, kind of special to me. This is my take on this story that is going to be different than quite what anyone else would produce and hopefully, you know, uniquely valuable for that. If I didn't feel that, I probably wouldn't get excited about the material. Mm. Uh, But going along with that is the fact that it's, yeah, it's not like it's a, you know, a write by numbers 
way of approaching something. In each case, you have to learn your own language for how you're going to cover the material and the characters. And, and they often, these characters, they don't do what you think they're going to do at the beginning. You know, you can have a, a pretty flat understanding of who they are, and they get more complex and, and surprise you along the way. Even if they still end up at the same place by the end, there are, for me as the writer at least, lots of surprises um, as I go. Well, I think because you have you have ten point of view characters, it's it's interesting because you yeah you kind of have to decide okay who's going to end this uh, mm. and what is going to resonate with the reader at the end and you know these kind of things. So the characters are going to die. I'm assuming <laughs> <laughs> there, there will be death. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But since you said you have characters from different backgrounds, not just mm. soldiers or or whatever or gladiators, or you do have more options to be flexible in the historical aspect of it um, right. because you can you know do whatever you want with certain characters and I guess with fantasy there used to be this predictability to fantasy like the good guy and the bad guy and the dragon and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff and, and I think that's good in a way but I think that's where the birth of Grimdark kind of came about and the reason a lot of people like the genre and and you know rob and i obviously enjoy it enough that we put grim in the name of our podcast and uh you actually told us before the show that you were kind of moving possibly in a grim dark direction with something could you elaborate on that well it's to some degree it's the the vampire werewolf stuff i was talking Mm -hmm. about which is not quite the same thing but there was a real darkness to that material when i was approaching it that way and yeah like i said it, it it i had a felt a lot of energy when I was writing those pages. And if there is a way that I can recapture that in a future work, I think I'd like to. Because it was definitely on, on the, the dark side of things. It was darker than much of what I've written before. Or it was, it was dark in a way that exploded a bit more. And that I was really, I was attracted to and would like to find a way to, to make that work in the future. Well, Grim Dark is a very sexy... Uh sexy beasts so everybody gets enticed by it <laughs> every so often absolutely hey, yeah me included would you say crafting a novel like the risen in contrast writing a, a novel like acacia you you're creating everything on your own the world the, the world building the characters and everything come from your complete imagination but with the historical novels you're you're using real world uh, history to help uh, craft the narrative um, I imagine that you find just as much enjoyment as crafting the prose as you do researching the history and all the elements that you need in, in, in order to create a story that, that reflects the, the time period that it's set in. Yeah, whether it's fantasy or historical, I feel like I approach the researching and world building in, in the same way. I suppose my template was learning to do it as a historical writer. And research for me is, it's such a, it's a pretty unsexy hodgepodge of things, you know, is <laughs> I always get asked, historical writers always get asked, you know, how do you research? And I never, we never really have very interesting answers, I don't think, you know, Google. Yeah, well, we, <laughs> we start with books, right? And, re, and actual work, sure. research. Um, there is that, there's reading a lot of books about the same thing and looking at how people treat the same topic in different ways. Um, reading until you find what kind of strikes you as true. There is absolutely Google. Yeah. 
it's a way to, to waste a lot of time in a day. It's a real balance that so much of research related stuff is a balancing act between finding the grounding and the historical details and the reality of the world you're writing in, whether it's imagined or from ages ago, because all that stuff is crucial. But also, if you're spending too much time researching, you potentially aren't actually writing the book that and telling the story that people want to read. So Google is a great tool. Often I'll have, I'll get something, you know, a scene and it's like, okay, you know, right. What did they wear in this place and time? And what did they have on, what did they have on their feet? What did they eat? And I'll go and, and look it up. Have to remember to go and find the answer. And if you can and find the answer and then get off the internet and go back to work, <laughs> because that can be a killer when, yes, I had a perfectly legitimate reason for going online. And now, you know, hours have passed and it stopped being legitimate a long time ago. And I've just, you know, wasted part of the writing day. That is an ongoing struggle, you know, one of many with just the artistic resistance. It's a term that Stephen Pressfield uses in his kind of craft book on writing or on being an artist called The War of Art. And he, he mostly writes uh, big ancient war epics, but he wrote this slim little book, The War of Art, which I think is great. And it's not so much a craft in terms of, you know, how to write. It's really focused on how to train yourself to recognize when you are giving in to the, the many forces that are kind of conspire against us to for us not to produce the thing we most want to produce artistically. There is so much risk in it and putting yourself out there and, you know, it's a lot to, to be concerned about. And I do find that after having read that book and the way he presented resistance as this shape-shifting beast that will appear in, in any form, uh, all intent on doing the same thing, which is stopping you from spending time with your words and the story you're telling and moving it forward. So Google is certainly... <laughs> It has some, you know, re resistance in, in the DNA there. Um, but it's other things. Like, when I was writing Pride of Carthage, I always remember how often I would find myself very reasonably getting up to get, like, a new another cup of coffee. And then I, I would, like, lose um, an hour and realize that, for some reason, I'm on my knees out on the, the path, like, weeding in the garden or something. And it's like, what? You know, what, what am I doing? What was in that coffee? <laughs> <laughs> like some resistance, I guess, because uh, it's just, but that was the thing. Once I, I had that term in mind, I'd kind of go, ah, I've just kind of given in to a bit of resistance, I put my energy into weeding in the garden instead of finishing that day's work. And it, it helps to think of it that way, for me at least, because I know that what I have to do is go back, sit down at the computer and get back to work. And and that's and Pressfield you know defines success on a on a daily basis not in terms of you know how much you write or hitting a certain word count, but it's success when you've shown up and done some work. Just that act of doing some work, whatever it produces for you, is defeating resistance for that day, and that's really all you can do. And I've definitely found that to be true. It doesn't really get easier. Uh, it's it's just kind of a, a bit of a struggle, but one that is so worth it. Would it be good to have like a punching bag that just has resistance on it and you can just punch it every time <laughs> resistance pissed you that off? <laughs> that is a great idea. And it would just be good for general fitness and stuff. Yeah. Take that resistance. <laughs> Take this uppercut to the face. <laughs> I, I like that idea, actually. Um, 
It's funny because like we're talking about research and uh, I'm doing a lesson. I'm, I'm a teacher uh, also. You're, you know, you're a professor at Stone. <laughs> Sorry, what's the name? <laughs> it's the, uh, the Stone Coast MFA program, uh, part okay. of University of Southern Maine. So one thing I was telling my students um, is, you know, don't use Wikipedia. And then the first mm-hmm. thing I did to research ancient Egypt was get on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, eh, Wikipedia will tell me. But I did find out about something called a canopic jar, which is a vessel containing internal uh, body organs. Yeah. And uh, I think that's really awesome that I found that out on Wikipedia. So <laughs> my students uh, probably should use Wikipedia. But uh, speaking of students, uh, that's my sloppy transition. I was wondering um, where you were going. <laughs> uh, you teach several students the art of uh, writing. Uh, I'm guessing you've had dozens and dozens, of, maybe even hundreds at this point. Um, hundreds. And hundreds yeah. <laughs> what is the main thing you you like to focus on with your students? Since you're teaching a course about popular fiction, uh, popular fiction obviously needs to reach a certain audience, and and uh, that's sometimes hard to attain. What would you say is your main creed, so to speak, about writing popular fiction or reaching that? You know, unattainable, sometimes unattainable audience. Right. Well, I, I'll probably take the answer in a different direction because a big part of what I really love about Stone Coast, I've taught other places as well, but Stone Coast is the place I've been for a good 10 years and I, I continue to love it. And partly because it includes popular fiction and you know, folks there can write in the genres even as they're earning their Master of Fine Arts degree. But also it's a low residency program so the way it's structured is twice a year we meet for 10 days, once in January, another time in July. And that's 10 days of super intense, you know, from, from early morning to late in the evening, uh, workshopping and lectures and readings, et cetera, et cetera. Just really packed days and lots of socializing, too. There's that. Uh, makes for a really good time, but it's intense and then it's done. And then for the next five months, I have... A, we all, the faculty has uh, a handful of students who they work with on a monthly basis um, for those five months. So these, I usually have about five, and each of those students sends me a packet of their writing of a certain you know, page length um, each, each month. And what I love about that is I, it's not just like a one-time thing where I, I read an excerpt from a novel or, or a story, and I can respond just, just in, in a one and that's it. Instead, there's a cumulative effect where I get to know the writer better and see what they're doing and see what they're struggling with and watch it grow or help you know, throw questions at them or push them in a different direction. But I guess what I'm getting at is that that individual uh, interaction over time and getting to see the trial and error of it with them means that I think I can, I can, I can pinpoint things I want them to work on and things I want to suggest in ways that I want to challenge them that are entirely different with each student. Mm. That's the thing, you know, they're, they're writing in different genres for sure, but with, um, with perspective for different audiences, it's, they're kind of, they're, they're all over the place and it's a great diversity. But what I really love is not so much having any one thing that I, I push for or say to everyone, but to have things that organically grow out of working with each individual, and it's not the same set of things. It's it's much more um, personally catered than that, and I think that's a great way to do it if you can. My teachers always told me to take out more intestines 
I have too many intestines in my story, so <laughs> I, needed to cut, I needed to cut back. Right. That sounds like good advice. <laughs> yeah, I think that's cool that you, you sort of tailor each set of questions or challenges to each student. And I think that actually helps writers in a way. You often hear people say, you know, read outside your genre yeah. or even or even write outside your genre. And you may discover something about yourself that you you, you didn't imagine. And I think for me, I used to write a lot of horror. And then I, th- I think Grimdark was kind of uh, mixed my love of, you know, early Dragonlance and the Forgotten Realms stuff and mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons and mixed that with horror elements in a way, like a darker tone. So, yeah, I think every every student or any writer that's wanting to learn can obviously learn from different sources and not just one kind of like set of you do that you should do this. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I very much believe in the the virtues of reading across genres and trying checking out how people do things in different parts of the literary world. And sometimes I, I, I'm very specifically recall when I was reading or writing Gabriel's story, I was trying to read uh, Westerns because mm-hmm. it's essentially, it's a Western. And I came across some Elmore Leonard because he wrote a lot of Westerns, you know, back in the day. Oh, yeah. And, but yeah, he also already seemed to have that, I don't know, that crime DNA, that, that craft was, mm-hmm. was in him already. So I felt influenced by that. But there's, there's this one book, um, it's like Showdown at Saber River or something like that. And I watched the way he got characters into some messed up situations and then managed to get the character out of it in ways that were entirely plausible and that related to elements that he put in place earlier and to the strengths and weaknesses of that character in ways that are completely believable. So it wasn't like, you know, Eureka, he's out of this. He's out of it in a way that makes perfect sense after the fact. Uh, And I love that. And there was something about, I guess in my mind, a bit of a Eureka, where it something that happens at the end of that book directly came out of that, of the realization of admiring how he did that and knowing I wanted to include it in my work as well. It was very, for me, it's a very tangible way of going, you know what, this crime writer, he gave me the tools to write the end of that book. It's really direct. And that's just one, one example. No doubt we have a number of uh, aspiring writers who uh, listen to our show and um, give us questions and whatnot uh, on occasion. I guess perhaps my question for you would be for anybody new who might be uh, considering the endeavor of writing historical fiction, what are maybe one or two pointers that you would give to somebody new to the experience that they could hang their hat on? I tend to think that most of the advice that's, that's reasonable for aspiring writers is, is the same old stuff. people answer that question and then I go, yep, that's true. And that's true too. Um, So a lot of it is just, it's this, you know, it's the old stuff of you have to read a ton, you have to write a ton and you have to be a combination of patient and impatient at the same time. Uh, Impatient, I think on a daily basis, because, you know, you want, you want to write something good and you want to get it to people and have them read it and, and move on from there. So I think there's a, a level of impatience that I wake up every morning and go, okay, I have to do some writing today. I have to move things forward. I want it done now. There is that. But then at the end of the day, I didn't get it done now because it's going to take a lot longer than that to actually you know, write this novel to completion. So it's, it's being able to, to aspire to get it all done and then to get to the end of the day and go, all right, I'm going to get up tomorrow and continue. Uh, so it's a real balancing act. And to know that things often take a lot longer than you'd ever want or imagine. And whether that's a matter of your own craft 
and skills growing, or whether it's just a matter of people out there deciding to recognize the good stuff you've written. It can be a long, a long game. I, I do think it's worth it. In terms of historical fiction, one thing that I, I felt like I, I realized in the process at, in, of writing Pride of Carthage in particular was a novel like that or something set in a world, you know, in a, a setting quite different than ours is only going to work if it's a real interweaving of fact of historical research and making a lot of stuff up, which seems obvious. Some of the research I did for that, or research, I'm, I'm kind of doing air quotes, was my family and I taking camping driving trips uh, around Spain and southern France and Italy, the places where most of the book takes place. And it was, it was a good time. The kids were, were, were little and we just cruised around and I certainly drank a lot of wine and ate a lot of good food and called it research. <laughs> but what was interesting was going to some ruins. So I went to the ruins of uh, Segunto. And I remember this specifically because I was early in the process of writing the book. And it's Seguntum, Segunto now. It was Segunto. That's an, a Spanish town that early in the book Hannibal is laying siege to. And I get there thinking, okay, I'll, I'll go to this place. I'll, I'll see what everything looks like. And then I'll know how to describe it in, in the book. But that didn't work. I could get there and yes, you get something out of being there and taking in the lay of the land and put yourself there and see how much of a view you would have and kind of, you know, there's definitely details to be found. But in actual fact, that city has been lived on for the last 2,000 years. There was very little that's there that was there in the time period I was writing about. So my Seguntum didn't exist anymore and hadn't existed for thousands of years. And that was actually quite liberating because it kind of helped convince me that if I was going to make this historical fiction work, I had to lie a lot and make stuff up and do it as convincingly as possible. And that was a good thing, a good thing to, to come to understand. Actually, there's another example of that too, as um, Flaubert wrote uh, Salambo, set kind of before um, Hannibal's time, but also in, in Carthage. And that it is a book that is so lush with exotic detail. Like it's just packed full of detail. It's as if he knows exactly what kind of jewelry everyone wore and where they came from and what this tribe ate and what kind of tattoos they had. Just lots of details. And I, I love these details. But then I was reading him talking about the research and claiming everything that was in the book was historically accurate. And I thought that was crazy. <laughs> it just seemed completely impossible because there were so many details and they were from a couple thousand years ago, I just didn't believe him. Uh, but what I did love, what it did make me think is, you know, these details, they don't have to actually be completely historically accurate because you're only ever going to get so much out of the history. You have to make up so much stuff to flesh out that world completely and to bring your characters to life. It's almost like saying, yeah, do the research, but also lighten up and just remember that you are writing fiction and you got to tell a good story. And that requires being a, a bit of a liar. <laughs> you liar! <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and we are just at, about out of time. Uh, how do we join the consortium of George R. R. Martin? How do we, can we get? Is there a special handshake, or is there? Um, could you put in a good word for us? Or right, is there well, some kind of knife, like ceremonial knife, involved or anything? Like <laughs> uh, I'm not allowed to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> oh, damn it. Um, 
you know, I I will say this is this is a definite aside. Um, but the first time I met George, um, there's a little bit of a story to that. It was at my first World Fantasy Conference, and it got to the the part of the conference where there was a big there's a big signing session where all of the authors who were there and Acacia had just come out then. All the authors who were guests um, go into this one big room and. You'll, they, you'll, there's a name tag you grab from a desk and you go and sit down and then the general public um, it, people not even just at the conference but just anyone can come in over the space of a number of hours and get books signed so the evening that was going to happen I went out with some, with some friends to dinner and they had the very very sound advice that you know whatever I do I didn't want to sit down next to George uh, <laughs> don't sit next to George because it, it would be, you know, soul-crushing. He's going to have a line, and this is, you know, before the series, but he was still, before the TV series, but he was still huge. He's going to have this enormous line the whole time, and I'm going to be sitting there with no one um, coming to sign, get, get anything signed, and it will be terribly embarrassing and not go well. And that all made a lot of sense, but, you know, I had a few drinks. <laughs> and then started thinking, well, wouldn't there be a benefit, actually, to hanging out with George? For a number of hours, maybe we'd we'd talk. Maybe if no one else is going to sit down next to him, it could be a good thing, a way to to make an introduction. So I get there, walk in, and sure enough, it's just as they, as they described. And I, I grab a name tag and I look around, and yeah, there's George, and he's at a table by himself. And I went okay. I w- walked over, introduced myself, and mentioned the Keisha, which you know he had heard of, and asked if I could sit down. And he looked at me a little weird, a little funny. Um, but I said, sure. And, and it was great, actually, because we talked and chatted for hours. Yes, he did have uh, an enormous line of people in front of him. Um, <laughs> and he signed a bunch of books. And most of the time, I wasn't doing that. But it was cool. I, I do feel like that was the kind of strange thing that I did to, to sort of break the ice. And I'm sure that good things, including being in wild cards, you know, can be traced back to, to choosing to sit down there and, and get to know him. Just to having those drinks so it goes all the way back to that. <laughs> Which, it, it, and when I, as I say that, I'm fully aware that there's not very much about that that's good advice. Um, you know, have have some drinks and go plop down next to a famous writer. Um, it, it could it could definitely not go well. <laughs> don't do this at home, folks. <laughs> yeah, and don't. Uh, other another thing not to do is don't talk to. For the first time to famous writers when you meet them in the bathroom. Done that mm-hmm. on a number of occasions and went, oh God, why did I start a conversation <laughs> at, at the urinal? I won't tell you with who though. So I really loved your series. <laughs> <laughs> so, someone once did that to me though. So I was, it was nice to be on the other side of it and go, ah, I see how, how awkward, I know how awkward you feel now. <laughs> I think that's David Anthony Durham in the stall next to me. <laughs> should I, should David! I <laughs> the answer is always no, I think. <laughs> no. Do not say anything to David in the bathroom. Does, does George smell like, like Old Spice? Or is he... <laughs> is he I'm just I, curious. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> smells like success. I'm sure yeah. Smells like money. <laughs> Pretty much. Smells like $11 million. 
Oh, George. Papa George. Well, David, it's been great to uh, have you on the show. The Risen dropped May 3rd from Doubleday Books. It's available everywhere in the world. So we advise people to go pick up a copy as well. Check out the Acacia Trilogy. Uh, what's what's next for well, you, David? I am contributing to the next Wild Cards book. It's In this case, it's just a standalone story, which is hopefully a lot simpler than my contributions to the last few. So that's one thing. Um, that I have just begun to work on. But, you know, it's a, it's a small thing. There's this e- Egyptian novel I'm trying to write, and there are the vampires and werewolves <laughs> lurking around trying to get my attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and, there, and there are some other fantasy ideas as well. I feel pretty, pretty scattered at the moment and hope to, to make sense of which one comes next soon and get to okay. work on it. Hey, I can actually help you with the Egyptian one. I did some I, research on Wikipedia. I, <laughs> <laughs> yep, I read that article about Canopic jars. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have anything in, under contract right now with Doubleday, or are you just kind of in between contracts? I am in or? between contracts. Okay. Um, and depending on what I'm doing, I I could be looking for a di- very, very different type of publisher. It may be, yeah. Sure. Yep. And I know listeners will be jazzed to at least hear about uh, what you have coming up and to hear you might be doing a vampire werewolf interpretation of things, I'm sure, would be uh, very interesting. Can we get, like, a copy of the, the B-side Spartacus with the werewolves? <laughs> Is that going to be made available? Or the director's cut. <laughs> I should probably hold that pretty close to my chest. Although, I, I will guess. admit that... My wife has just decided that she thinks this vampire thing uh, translated to another character in a slightly different setting is a good idea. So she asked to read some of those old old Spartacus pages, and she did read a couple of chapters. And to my surprise and delight, she still gets to the end of all that blood and gore and thinks, yeah, this you should do something with this. So I'm still referencing those pages, but I don't know that they're ever going to be public. Uh, and if, it, if it's going to fly it's going to be attached to a different character. Well, good stuff, David. Uh, for folks who want to keep up with you online, where can they find you? Uh, well, it's davidanthonydurham.com. That will take you to my blog. I have Facebook, you know, just me by my name. And I'm on Goodreads. I don't tweet. Tweet. Uh, oh, you're, you're not in the cult. No, not in the cult. I know. I just, I, I just avoided <laughs> that early on and never it's caught good. on. It's good that you avoid the cult. <laughs> <laughs> we always refer to Twitter as a cult on the show because there's some secret there's some secret way to use it that certain people you know like me don't understand how um, I'm supposed I'm, to use it yep I'm with you on that <laughs> The Risen is the novel available now from author David Anthony Durham thanks so much for joining us on the show today it's been great well, to talk well, to you um, thanks for talking to me I had a good time awesome you can find us online at facebook.com slash the Grim Tidings Podcast or on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction. Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean, and be sure to drop by our Facebook group, Grim Dark Fiction Readers and Writers, for daily updates on all things Grimdark. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time. podcasting.